Hey guys, it's Pete with Starting Strength to give you an update on all the events that we have coming up. For complete seminars, the next one on the list is going to be in Wichita Falls on March 6th through the 8th. Woodmere, New York is sold out, as I said before. Then Denver, Colorado on May 15th through the 17th. And then we have another one on the list in Wichita Falls on June 26th through the 28th. We have some squat and deadlift camps on the list, next one being in Savannah, Georgia on March 28th. Then we just added Phoenix, Arizona on May 9th. And still some spots left in Bellevue, Washington on May 16th. For our new three lift camp that covers the squat press and deadlift will be in Baltimore on May 17th at 5x3 and then in Singapore at Hygieia Strength on May 31st. We have a pulling camp on May 3rd that's the deadlift and power clean in Woodmere, New York. We have a double camp going on in Seoul, South Korea. On June 14th in the morning the guys will be conducting a squat camp and then that same afternoon they'll be conducting a pulling camp covering the deadlift and the power clean. Just added a nutrition camp to the list will be in Chicago on May 16th. For meets coming up the next one will be in Omaha on March 14th. That'll be at Testify Strength and Conditioning, and it'll be a USAW weightlifting meet. After that, it'll be March 22nd at Woodmere for a deadlift only meet, then Phoenix, Arizona on April 18th for a strength lifting meet, then back to Omaha on April 25th for a strength lifting meet, and finally on May 9th in Omaha, another weightlifting meet sanctioned by USAW. On April 18th, Starting Strength Denver will be hosting Stan Efforting with his Nutrition and Strength Seminar. For details and information, head over to the Starting Strength Denver Facebook page. And if you're looking for Starting Strength Gyms or want to request a Starting Strength Gym in your area, you can head over to locations.startingstrengthgyms.com. And for any more details and registration information, as usual, you can head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, Starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. It's Friday, and you're here, and so are we. And we are here this weekend with my old friend Owen Kelly. Owen is an orthopedic surgeon practicing in Russellville, Arkansas. He's from Wichita Falls. And Owen and I have known each other 34 years. And uh, uh, we're buddies. <laughs> we're buddies. Owen is, uh, has got a very, very successful orthopedic surgery practice in, in Arkansas. And his specialty, um, I guess if you could say it's a specialty, is knee and hip replacement. He does knee and hip prostheses. And he's done lots and lots and lots of these. And this is a topic of interest to lots and lots of people because of the fact that the surgery is now available and you don't have to be crippled anymore if your knees and hips are worn out. The surgeries, when done correctly, is very, very good. We have people squat with knees and hips all the time, and uh, they're able to train productively and successfully, and they're out of pain. And so we're going to discuss this, this surgery today, and we're going we're gonna to talk to the man about this. Thank you for being here, Owen. I'm glad I'm here. Glad it's to be good here. good to see you again. Uh, so uh, you went to the University of Arkansas, went to medical school, University of Arkansas. Tell us about your, your experience and your practice. Uh, so I went to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville for undergrad and uh, UAMS in Little Rock for medical school. And then I trained at the, the VA hospital at the Arkansas Children's Hospital and uh, UAMS in Little Rock. And then I've been practicing in Russellville for nearly 17 years. Um, I'm a board certified orthopedic surgeon. I recertified in 2015. Um, 
my practice being a general orthopedic surgeon in a smaller area uh, where there's not a lot of specialty, I, I can kind of d- guide my practice where I like it. So I do mm-hmm. a lots of uh, the, most of the joint arthroplasty or joint replacement surgery and then the, lots of the trauma in the area. I try to stray away from a lot of the sports stuff. I do it, but I, I have a more of an interest in uh, mm-hmm. joint replacement and trauma. Right. So somebody comes in with a compound fractured femur. You deal with that. Uh, be, that's, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I don't love that, but yeah, that's, <laughs> I like it. Yeah, you like the way it looks. <laughs> when you go in the ER and there's, I like the physical aspect of. Uh, the I like pro- the physical. You like to solve the problem. I like the physical aspect of orthopedics. I like the, yeah. the bigger stuff. There's uh, obviously the the arthroscopy and the ACL stuff and the the stuff that's more kind of in vogue with sports is is uh, I do right. it, but it's not my favorite thing to do. Right, and we'll talk about the. Meniscal repairs later, because that's you need to hear this, boys and girls. Uh, so, uh, knee and hip replacement. What is the history of that surgery? When did that all start? Oh, I don't know the exact time, actual year, but actually, hip replacements. Doctor Charnley in Europe started, um, and he would actually put a plastic polyethylene cup in, uh, cemented it with bone cement, and then he would cement in a, uh, a metal prosthesis into the thigh bone. And uh, I think over the first, his, when, he, when he started doing his, uh, now he's not the father of it, but he's the one that really started it. It's, when was this? I can't give you the exact time. I 70s, probably? Yeah, 60s, 70s, because Carl Nelson. It's been a while. Yeah, Carl Nelson, who was our chairman, uh, trained with. He started at Arkansas in 74, and he trained with him before that. So six, uh, late 60s, or early 70s. And he had a significant you know, failure rate, obviously, but that with, with Prototypes medicine. Prototypes being right. what they are. And so he eventually perfected um, – he perfected it, and then and then it's advanced from there from to now where you do what we call a press fit hip, where the the you know the implant is placed into the thigh bone without any bone cement. It basically gets stuck in there, and it and the bone grows in. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the acetabulum, which is the socket part. It, mm-hmm. it it grows into the socket as well. And implants have gone through their stages of what's kind of in vogue, but it's pretty much stayed the stayed about the same. What about knees? When did that start taking place? Um. I'm not 100% sure, but 1968. 68. So late 60s, early 70s. There you go. Our research uh, assistant. Yes. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, I think the natural history of knees isn't as exciting as it is with hips, uh, but it's the same type of process. And we really, uh, different from, from the hips, we can go into this, you know, most knees are cemented in with bone cement, mm-hmm. whereas most hips are press fit. And that's not an absolute, but that's what the majority of people right. do. So uh, the technology of uh, knee and hip replacements has essentially been uh, advanced through uh, advances in the, the prostheses themselves. The surgery, is it fair to say that the surgery has not evolved? The surgery has evolved as a result of the development of the prosthesis. Yes, and... and- there is, you know, there is some technology in it, but I would say over the last several decades, the the change in the implant is 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 
there's small changes, but they're not big. The approach to a knee replacement is the approach to a knee replacement. They've tried mm-hmm. it different ways, but it really doesn't change. The approach to a hip, there's you can do there's there's an anterior approach, interlateral approach, direct lateral, posterior approach. But the approach to the hip is is you know it hasn't changed either. They're the same surgical approaches that you that you get to the knee and get to the hip and other types of surgeries too. So mm-hmm. and you know it's just kind of surgeon dependent. What surgeon choice? What kind of what type of approach do you want to do to the hip? So do who who actually develops this technology the companies involved in it or are they working with you guys or yes or? Uh, there are there are lots of physicians that like to be involved in in the process of implant design and um, it makes a big difference especially the 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 big joint replacement guys that's, that's all they do in the big centers they they can make some some impact on on uh, on types of implants and, and it makes a big difference but really the implants that i use i've been practicing for 17 years there's been some small changes but nothing drastic right and biomet and striker yeah biomet the zimmer two big, striker or the two big players yeah in the two of the big probably three players so there's some other ones that, that get mm-hmm. thrown in there but they they do uh, a significant amount of the of the joint replacement um there is uh there's a lot of money in this I, I I guess that these companies have invested a hell of a lot of money in the in the production of uh, of this equipment and technology, and I I guess they're probably uh, in a position to spend a lot of money on R and D. And uh, yes, you know that's probably a good thing, isn't it? It is. I mean, competition is good. I mean, it it, it makes things better, and and. People say, well, that implant isn't any good or that, you know, that's not true. Most implants out in the market today, if they're not any good, nobody's using them. Right. So if whatever type of implant, whatever surgeon chooses to, whatever type of implant he he or she uses, it's going to be a good implant mm-hmm. that's been tested. I mean, that's the one thing about well, the United States. Nobody wants to be sued. The United know? States, <laughs> they try to make things safe. That's, I mean, you have to, there's a lot of legal stuff, but, but it does give you a lot of safety, especially with what we do. Right. Don't go to China to have this done. Okay, stay here to have it done. Uh, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about these types of procedures is that you and I uh, really don't know what the hell happens between the time they put us to sleep and the time they wake us back up in recovery. So, uh, Owen, tell us uh, tell us what the hell goes on here on a hip and on a knee. Let's. Let's start with a the hip. They, they wheel me in. I'm out. Anesthesia's already been done on me. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm out. They wheel me into the OR. What happens next? All right, well, let's what back do up, you do? Let's back up a little bit before okay. that. You come to my clinic. You have some hip pain. People believe hip pain is here, and I know you probably can't see me, but your hip is your growing in your thigh. Yes. Hip pain is your growing thigh pain. One of the main complaints people come in when they have a hip problem is they have thigh pain. They think it's their knee because they have this right. aching knee. They can't pinpoint it. It's, you come in. We x-ray you, a standing x-ray. We find out you have bone-on-bone arthritis. You hear arthritis thrown around. Mm-hmm. What arthritis means, if you take it and break it down, arth means joint. Itis means inflammation. inflammation. So you have an inflamed joint. Arthritis really isn't a condition of having something. 
actually you don't have something. You don't have your normal joint cartilage. Mm-hmm. Your car may be in the, good shape, but the, your tire's worn down. That's right. the best way the to The inflammation it. has eaten away the cartilage. It is. And, then and lost, now you've got arthrosis. Right. And so you right. have, instead of a nice smooth surface to, for your hip or knee or whatever is moving, now you have a painful joint surface. Mm-hmm. So we have that. We, we give you your options, which for hip, hip arthritis, it's minimal. You can put a cane in your hand, take anti-inflammatories. If it's bad enough, then hip replacement. So we sign you up. Make sure you're medically clear. It's an elective surgery. We don't want to take you to surgery if you, if you have some health issues that haven't been worked out. Most, mm-hmm. of, most of the time when you have your hip replacement, you're a, little bit, you're a little bit less young. So there can be some heart issues, you know, diabetes. A lot of, so we get that cleared up. They, they come in. Most of the time you go to sleep. It depends on what your surgeon choice is, what approach is he going to do. Is he going to do a posterior approach? Is he going to do an interlateral approach? Is he going to do an anterior approach? That's just surgeon preference this is how they get how, how they get to, to your the, hip to the hip so right all right i'm gonna bring a model so this is your hip guys this is your hip all right that's your pelvis the best way is this is where your belt line is mm-hmm. but when you put your hands on a hip that's it so here's the mm-hmm. ball here's the the ball and socket joint right here hip if i dislocate turn, turn him around if so i dislocated we... your hip there's the socket part there's a ball the red shows you your weight bearing surface there's not much left in there. Okay, so we go down to the hip. You dissect down to the hip, and you dislocate it. Okay, you just so you're gonna just you're gonna flay the skin back. You're gonna you go through the skin. You go through the fascia. I go through an anterior lateral approach. So I take the abductors off, which move your mm-hmm. leg out to the side, and then I put retractors uh, around the front of the. You take the an- the adductors off. A third of them. Take a third of them off the greater trochanter. Off the trochanter. And I've elevated up at that point. Right, the anterior side of the right. greater trochanter. So really, I'm going in through anterior, but going through an anterior lateral approach. Mm-hmm. Okay. We find the capsule, which is the overlying layer. It's like a water balloon at what covers the hip. And we open up the capsule. Every time you open it up, if you got a bad joint, it's going to be filled full of blood or fluid or, you know, loose Goo bodies. Of some sort. You dislocate right. the hip. Okay? Get, right. Pop it out of the joint. Now, there there is an ilio uh, uh, femoral ligament. Yes. Right? Yes. Is that going to be intact in a patient like this? It, it's a little bit more medial. It's a little medial, so you mm-hmm. try to stay. Most of the time, you can retract it and get it out of the way. Right. Okay. But when you get into the hip after you dislocate it, then you cut the top of the, you cut the top of the ball off. Bam, it's gone. So the ligament's now gone. It part of it is gone. That's, you you have ligament structures in there, but right. they're, then you have the, the capsular ligaments yes. is what right. what we have left, right? And so there you are. You take uh, a reamer. It looks like a. A cheese grater, like a circular mm-hmm. cheese grater. You put a it into the acetabulum. Yeah, put it into the acetabulum. You turn it on, and you ream it. Okay? Like with an electric motor. That's exactly right. It's, just, it's right. a drill. Once it's out, then you have a hole, and you've measured it. Your reamer, you, and a lot of this is some art. Now, there's a lot of techniques that people use now. They can measure it directly without them having to ream it, but it's reamed out. Then you put the artificial implant in. It's not this, you know, obviously. the. Then you put an artificial implant in there. It's stuck. It gets stuck in there. You you hit it in with a mallet and it gets stuck. <laughs> and so once that. I'm glad I'm asleep for this. Yes. <laughs> once that's done, you expose the femur. You right. expose the top of the femur and you rasp it. You take a rasp and it looks just like a hip replacement, but it looks like a rasp. Okay. So, so we've already cut the head of the femur it's off. Gone. Right. Femoral neck, everything, all that's gone. gone. There's your cut. And now we've got that. You ream it out, which means basically 
First thing I do is I I, I take this thing called a Ben-Hur reamer. You've seen the movie Ben-Hur when mm-hmm. they have the chariot with the things that's... So right. It goes in there, it opens it up, and then right. I take a lateralizing device, which goes right down the canal, will tell me where the canal is, and I take rasps. They look like this implant, but right. they're but they're like you're filing something. Right. You put them down there until you get a good fit. Once you feel like you have a good fit, I have x-ray in the room. So you're going to rasp the hole, until it, size it. Until something's stuck. Until something it, sticks. Stuck. Right. Then, if you can't get it down, if it, you can't get the implant down into the... Well, once into the, the it, into the cavity, then is, you continue reaming it, just like you would size anything. Right, and, you, and it's technically, you know, it's not. It's just learning it. Once right, you get sure. the implant that's right at the edge here, right above the lesser trochanter in the in the medial calcar area, once it's there, you, you got a pretty good fit. I get an X-ray. Some people don't. I get an X-ray. I use a C-arm, which is a fluoroscopy. It's a real-time X-ray, right. and I look at the implant. I'm like, I like that. Uh, I like it where it sits. Once you have the size that fits and you have a neck length and head length, then you put your implant in. And this is how long this thing is. It, it, the thicker it is, the longer it'll be. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it goes in. It's stuck in there. And how do you choose the size of this? This isn't a nail, but this is a... You choose this size by what size it's stuck in there. Okay, what, so that size. Now there's different. This vary with the patient. Yes, there's different so neck you, lengths. Right. There's different. There's an offset stem. So a 120 pound female is going to have a different implant than a 250 pound male. And, and what is opposite is that your implant goes into your canal. So a 120 pound lady who is osteoporotic is actually going to have a wider canal. Mm-hmm. Not a bigger bone, but a wider canal because her cortex is probably aren't as thick. Right. So she may get a bigger implant than a 250-pound really? man. Yes. Yes. Because yeah, we, and we, that would be to her advantage because now there's more surface area uh, bone in contact with the implant. So the implant to, isn't based to distribute on— the, the implant the isn't really based on the size of the femur. It's based on how much medullary canal is in there. Mm-hmm. So if you have a big, thick okay. cortices, then you— you know, you beat it. You can beat one in there that's bigger, but it, it ain't gonna work. Right. Certain implants have a. And this is very technical, but have a high offset. Okay. If you have somebody who doesn't have very good muscle mass and you're worried about dislocation, then they'll do an offset stem. So this will actually be over here. So what that does is it gives you a tighter hip by pulling on the abductor muscles, but not. Oh, I see. Sh- lengthening your leg it just two changes ways. the mechanics of the way the hip relates right. to two, the, yeah so two ways to make it tighter or right. to make the neck longer push right. it farther out or to make the abductors tighter well if you right. already have equal leg lengths on your x-ray mm-hmm. on your when you have the implant in you don't want to you don't want to make her tighter by making the leg longer you want to do it by pushing the leg out to the side and letting the abductors and it's it's all you know it's force and um and it's it's you know, once you do enough and you kind of get used to it, it's just second nature to you. So do you ever have any trouble in osteoporotic females with a fracture when you yeah. try to emplace If the, you're not breaking a couple femurs a year, if you're not yeah. cracking them, you're not then putting you're them not. in tight enough. Right. And so we have cables on the foul. Now, that sounds crazy, but it, you put a cable around it like this if it cracks. Before you put the – or you after it, it after cracks. After you see a crack, you take it out, put a cable on it. Reinforce and, the and, fracture. Right, and put it back in. And you right. can weight bear on and that. And it'll heal. Weight bear on it immediately. Immediately. Wow. You don't restrict them or anything. It's oh, just, that's interesting. It's just part of the process. Right. Um, once you get the implant in, um, you reduce it. 
which means you push it back in joint. Turn it around so everyone can see. Now, if you so you have in effect reduced right. the surface well, area of the of the femoral head in contact with the acetabulum. Right. right? And, and it used to be when I was in training, we would have 22 millimeter and 28 millimeter heads. Um, the metal on metal prosthesis, you could have heads that were basically they were, I think they were eight millimeters below the size of the cup. So if you had 50 cup, you have 42 head. I mean, they're big. So your, wow. so your risk of dislocation was very low. But now that we go, most people go ceramic on polyethylene or they do metal on polyethylene. The head there are some bigger heads, like 32-millimeter heads, which, which I'll use, and some 36-millimeter heads. Uh, most of the heads are not bigger than that. So the bigger the head, the more circumference you have, the more less likely dislocation rate you have. And dislocation rate is also directly related to the approach you use. So the dislocation rate has a, is, is a function of the size of the, of the, the ball and the uh, cup, and it's higher the smaller the, well, the size is right? right but dislocation is basically i think it's more of a function of implant placement because if you put the cup in a little mm -hmm. bit what we call inverted you can have different areas where the ball will come out in 17 years i think three times i've had trouble with that and would have to go in and put the cup in a different position mm -hmm. uh, a posterior approach doing a posterior approach you know more people put more pressure on the hip posteriorly, especially when they're getting off a toilet or getting up from a chair. So with a posterior approach, it's more, like, more likely to dislocate right. because posterior is more in, unstable. Right. So if I'm going to squat on this implant, I'd prefer Do, an anterior. Absolutely. Anterior, anterior lateral approach. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And right. with a fracture, because there's, and this is logistic, once again, this is way branching out, but like if you... If you do a hip replacement for somebody that broke their hip who's an active person in their 70s, you would mm -hmm. want to do an anterior lateral approach because if you do a posterior approach for a hip fracture, the chances of dislocation, I think, is three times what it is uh -huh. if you do an anterior lateral approach. Right. Uh, well, while we're talking about uh, the, the prosthesis itself, uh, you had mentioned a metal-on-metal -metal approach where mm -hmm. you have a much larger ball right much larger replacement femoral head right and a much larger cup much larger replacement acetabulum why are those not used as much anymore well about a decade ago maybe less um there were some problems with one type of implant metal on metal implant called metallosis which basically means that the metal ions were getting were, were wearing down causing metallosis, coming out into solution and right and, it was basically based on if the cup was too much, I believe, anverted, which means it was too open. So you had too much metal irritation, and don't quote me on this, but too much metal irritation or metal movement on the rim of the cup. Mm -hmm. um, and so they took it off the market. Well, well, that sounds like a metallurgy problem more than a mechanical problem. Right, right? And, and it's more of a placement of implant problem. I but mean, they could, they could fix this to make a more inert probably, I, prosthesis I'm, if they wanted to it well, would seem like to me i, I mean the bigger the head and i liked doing i did i did specifically only metal on metal for a long time and then when they started taking them off the market they wouldn't let us do it i mean the right. surgeon that did my mother's hip replacement in uh, the dallas fort worth metroplex i talked to him and literally he had done thousands of them without any problem metal on metal mm -hmm, metal on metal is it still available if you want it no 
Really? It's not available. It's not even available now. not even available. In fact, I had a gentleman that had done a metal on metal on, and he fell and dislocated his metal on metal hip. So I had to revise his hip to... To he actually broke modern. the implant, oh, did, God. popped the head off, and every I mean, it, he did the splits. <laughs> and so, I, I, did, I have metal on metal was not available, so I had to use a special type of plastic head that they that big polyethylene head that looked like one, but it mm-hmm. wasn't metal. So, so you didn't have to revise the acetabulum, no, no, I didn't have to revise the acetabulum or the femur, just, was, just, just the, the head, the and head neck, of the yeah, implant, head and neck, yeah. Well, that's interesting, it's fortunate. So <laughs> How much uh, less stability do you think uh, this thing provides in the absence of the uh, iliofemoral ligament tying the thing together? I mean, that would—that seems like uh, a mechanical problem that could possibly. It, it show could, up. but but when you do a revision on a hip, which means when you go in and revise one, take an old one out, put a new one in there, you're not opening up the joint, and it's full of air i mean there's mm-hmm. soft tissue everywhere right surrounds it completely. the whole thing is being held together it's, it's, with muscle tension it's soft tissue right. there's scar tissue so your body learns to for the range of motion it needs but everything else in there kind of locks it down so stability with implants is it's an occasional question it's a it's not a very common occurrence anymore because implants um just techniques and, and approaches have have changed and have improved so it's not an issue. I would well, say that. Well, and I would also venture to guess that somebody with a with a hip implant is uh, going to tend to protect the hip as well. Yeah, but you don't I, go jumping off a building. No, but you, what you, you do hear from people is they'll say, "I forgot about it because it feels so much better." Yeah. I don't even yeah, remember. I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't hurt all the goddamn right. time like it used to. And right. It's a quality of life issue. Right. You know, if you got a if you got a pain problem. You know, that's what a, you know, a hip and knee replacement, I tell you, I don't save anybody's life. I don't do that when you're doing replacements. You're not saving somebody's life. You're improving their quality of life. Sure. Right. Sure. This is important. And we're going to come back to that. This is a very important aspect of this, of this discussion. So, uh, you get the, the, the implants in place. You've got hip done. you got femur done. And now what happens? Close them up. Close them up. You either sew the abductor, if you're doing a direct anterior approach, it's just a muscular. If you're doing a posterior anterior lateral, you take the abductor, you sew them back. Um, you close the... Sew them back onto the the Sew them issue. back tendon-wise. You can, some people use sutures through the bone. It's technique-wise, however you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I close the IT band, uh, sub-Q skin, recovery room. Get them up, walk them the next day. Get do you them out split of the, the IT band? Or, yes, split or, it. I do. Split it right down the middle. Right down the middle right. to make room instead of cutting it. Right. I just I just split it and across. I retract it. And once you split the so IT band. That doesn't really affect its strength at all, it does it? Not at all. Not at all. Incisions heal side to side, not end to end. Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so then they wake up in recovery and uh, – uh, they're in there about an hour, and then they go back to the room, and then. Well, and some people do it differently. I try to give them the first day off, and then the next day I get them up and walk them. That's it. With a hip replacement, recovery, a hip, I tell people, getting up, 
and walking. Get up from a seated position and walking is the best rehab you can do. Mm-hmm. I limit abduction for six weeks. I don't let them do active abduction, which means right. use their own muscles to abduct Well, them. that way they, they protect you let their ab- the adductors mm-hmm. heal. They, right. You let them heal. Uh, most people with an anterior lateral approach will have a, a little bit of a painless, you know, most of the pain from hip replacement, the surgical pain is gone with somewhere between two to six weeks. You know, most people are regretting their surgery the first two weeks. They forgive mm-hmm. you about four weeks. By eight to ten weeks, they, they really love They're, you. Everything's uh, fine. They'll have a what, limp. What causes the problem? The bone? Yeah, cutting, taking the saw and cutting your bone, it, that, that hurts. That, that hurts. It, it does. It hurts. And, um, it, and it's hard to ex- explain to people how bad it hurts. Um, but <laughs> with an anterolateral approach, they'll have a uh, – you know, they'll have a little bit of a limp. I can notice it. Most of them don't notice it, but I can see them limping, and usually that limp is gone at, at, at six weeks. Um, and there's lots of controversy, not controversy, but there's lots of debate on what approach is best. And this is what I, I whatever, you know, pick a surgeon you trust and, and, and you believe in them and that's done a good job for you. And don't worry about what approach they use. Just pick somebody you trust, and well, they'll do a good job for it, you. There's probably an argument to be made against a posterior approach. Though. There's an argument to be made against every approach. Right. Against uh, the surgery I itself. I mean, a posterior sure, approach but... is, is a, it used to be very, very common. People do it. It's a good approach. People have good results with it. An anterolateral approach, the same way. The, the anterior approach was kind of the new in vogue thing. But there's there's negatives to every single one of them, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, it, it, the negatives aren't on the patient; they're on the, the surgeon. Right? You know what what is what does your surgeon feel that he's best able to do? I've done posterior approach and interlateral. Um, I feel best with interlateral. That's how I trained. I have my results for me are good for for me. I don't badmouth mm-hmm. somebody else's technique right. because. Because it's not something I like. If you go in anterior, how long is the incision? It just depends. It all depends on patient size, patient anatomy. Anterior approach is kind of the new in vogue. You have to have a special table to do an anterior direct. Oh, really? Yeah. You don't just lay on your back? You do, but you have to completely, you have to to extend the hip about 90 degrees to dislocate it. Straight back extension. Oh, God. So the... Torso is elevated. No, you're flat. The, you're flat, and then you take. A, there's a special table, and the and the, you got and the, the drop on the drops table. Drops it down. Drop oh. it, and it extends it, and you cut it. And the so it, you're standing where next to the right patient? next to them on the yeah, so right over the top. And so with they're it, they're at chest level to you. Yeah, chest or whatever you know, whatever right. height you want. Um, Plus, on the anterior approach, you have to special acetabular reamers, and you have to do it under X-ray. Most people do. Yeah. Um, whereas an anterior approach, posterior, you have direct. But with an anterior approach, your your reamer, the one when you're reaming, they have to be curved to get around the anatomy. And mm-hmm. there's certain guys that do it. There's um, colleagues of mine that are just their joint specialists. That's all they do. A lot of them like the anterior approach. They've done it enough. They feel good about it. Have good results with it, and they do a good job. And is how long does it take? relatively speaking between the three approaches is one of them shorter well, everybody's longer. different um i you know traditional interlateral approach that i do with a with a patient that is um, average size in arkansas has a bit different average size <laughs> um i can i can i we can do i can have implants in and be closing somewhere between 35 45 minutes wow from from first incision to 
close. Well, yeah, from getting down to exposure to that. But closing takes 15 minutes, sometimes 20. Uh, anterior approach, probably an hour. Posterior approach, you know, about the same as that. Right. You know, the exposure is the exposure is, is really not the difficult part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the difficult part of it is making sure you have one that fits, getting the x-ray in, making sure. But when you have a team, you're only as good as the people you work with. So if you have a good team, they can make you very efficient. So right. I've got a team I've been working with for a long time. They're very efficient. So do you close? Yes. Or do you I'd, just do the... I don't have a PA, a physician assistant, or a or a, or a nurse practitioner. I, I change my own bandages. I do all. You that do stuff. the whole I procedure do. from I'm, open to close. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because I I've, I've heard some people do the implant and then they walk right. off and I have let the colleagues that do. have physician assistants that's, that's that's what they do. They uh, right. they close all their wounds. I don't do that. I, I don't. There's a you know. I just don't. I choose not to. Doesn't right. make it wrong or right. Just makes it what right. I right. You just want to make sure that. The whole damn thing is your work. Right. right. And, you know, and there's always complications with everything. There's a complication rate every surgeon has. Everybody's about the same, and it just happens. You know, complications are part of the risks of doing surgery. Right. Now, uh, what about a knee? Do, which would you rather perform if you – are you I'd rather, ambivalent about it, I, or you rather, like hips or better than knees? I'd rather do mm. all hips. Really? Uh, knees are people, hips, more variable, huh? Yeah, they are. Hips do so much better. Um, the problem is, and this is it, I mean, if you're going to do them, you know, you have to take care of the complications. And, and knee complications, you know, revision knees are 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 a little bit. Probably more common than hip yeah, revisions. Yeah, than hip revisions. Hip revisions right. are difficult. And if I have trouble, you know, I'm not too proud to say I got a colleague of mine who does lots of, that's all he does is revisions, and I, you know, I ask for his assistance and send them to him to do. Mm-hmm. But I like hips. Patients, I tell people this: you can do the two most patient satisfying surgeries, and this is by studies: carpal tunnel releases, mm-hmm. hip replacements. Right. Because you, you know what they now hit. you're not hurting anymore. And, and if it's you've ever very had, very important. If you've ever had hip pain, it's mm-hmm. miserable. I mean, and people, oh, yeah. people are miserable and they're angry, angry miserable because they you can't yeah. get comfortable. No. A bad knee. Prop it up. Put some ice on it. You yeah. can't your hip. You can't prop it up because no. you're propping up your body. Yeah. You know, right. and uh, it's a big joint. Mm-hmm. So yeah, hips hands down. Um, now on to knees. They, yeah, let's talk about how we do those and uh, right. And, same and, kind of thing. Same kind of thing. So knees can be looking at a knee. If you're going to get a traditional total knee replacement, there's a lot more variables on the implant okay and i'm going to try to make this as simple as i can okay there's a the three basic types there's a posterior cruciate retaining okay and this is a total knee this right. isn't like a unicondor where you save the posterior cruciate right. ligament there's a posterior cruciate retaining knee there's a posterior stabilized knee and then there's a constrained knee okay now you can throw a fourth one in there which is a linked or prosthesis that's actually attached together, like a hinge right. that has that is a bearing in there that does not separate. You know, a constrained, right. a poster stabilized, and a poster cruciate retaining. Do we ever retain ACL in one of these things? No. Just not possible. We don't. Here, here's my, and this is my thinking on a posterior cruciate retaining. I do a better job. I can recreate a posterior stabilized knee better. The problem with a retaining knee is that a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times if you've had a PCR done, the native PCL that you maintain 
loosens over time. Mm-hmm. So you have people that Because it's now, under so much more stress. Than, so people develop instability posteriorly six months, year years after it, when they've had an excellent surgery done. They're like, what's going on? And the problem is they've had a PCR. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to revise that to a posterior cruciate. Now for everybody, everybody watching this here, anterior cruciate, here's the femur, here's the, here's the tibia. Anterior cruciate keeps that from happening. Anterior cruciate ligament. Tibia translating forward relative to the femur. And PCL prevents the opposite from happening. So this is posterior instability. Right. So ACL prevents anterior translation of the tibia on the femur. Right. And it's very, at 30 degrees of flexion, that's when it's really just your ACL that's doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's when you see... If you've been at, watch the ESPN, watch somebody go down, or watch a basketball game, they come down and they do a Lockman's test. Mm-hmm. You know, they the, the, they're checking it, and right. that's just for show, really. But they could, they could <laughs> do it on the sideline. Um, and so, posterior posterior cruciate ligament is 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 um, posterior translation. And how I explain that to people, a common way to injure your po- posterior cruciate ligament is if you're in a car wreck and the dash hits you below the knee, and takes your tibia, shoves, and shoves you. it. Sh- Shoves it straight back, right. and so you have posterior. Now, a posterior cruciate ligament is not as in is not as vital to repair. You can rehab right. a knee and make up for the deficit. The problem is when you do a if you have a insufficient posterior cruciate ligament after a knee replacement, you don't have you, muscle strength and stuff doesn't it doesn't play as big a part in helping with that stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I do a posterior stabilized. Um, I'll explain that here in a minute. So you come in, they get you signed up for surgery, and, and basically people think that you've taken the whole knee off, but but you're not really taking the knee off. The best not way anymore. To, no, right? you, you're basically it's like a bad, it's like you're crowning a tooth. You're taking off the layer above it. So, you're resurfacing right. basically. So this is what you're taking. You're taking about this much off, and this is a poster cruciate retaining. I'm sorry, I don't have a poster stabilized. So that's what it, it goes on. So it's not like you're if you look at it from the side view. I mean. You got a metal layer there mm-hmm. on the front. It looks more. It looks like the whole knee is made of metal, but it's mm-hmm. not. So then you take the top of the tibia off, and this is there's all cuts done. You know, you have a measurement guide, mm-hmm. and then you place the tray in here, the polyethylene, which is this, is. And this is actually the substance. Is that whole? That's the real deal. This, this is, is the. This is what you're placing. High density. In. High plastic. density pop. It is. It is, and it's uh, very slick. Yeah. It, the, the attempt is, to, of course, to recreate a frictionless surface. Right. And so the normal wear, I think, I think it's 0.01 millimeters a year. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. How does this thing withstand uh, compression? It stands compression well. Um, I, it, I have people that overdo it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, in I know my, a couple of in those. In my mind. But <laughs> Our friend Phil Anderson. Yeah, he's had, he's had uh, both of his knees replaced. He, um, is a, he is not a smart person. Uh, so that's what you do. Now, a posterior cruciate stabilizer that I use has a little plastic post in here that goes in here. And what that does is it prevents posterior rollback. So with it, your knee can't go this way. So, yeah, turn them so we can. Yeah, so when the notches are posterior rollback, which means when you do that, it won't dislocate. Right. Okay. A con- that's a stabilized. A constrained just has a thicker plastic post in there. So right. it also gives you, because when you're doing a revision and you need to constrain, right. your collateral ligaments, 
They're obsolete. They're no longer there. Really? They're scar tissue. So you want something that... No, yeah, I guess if you pull the whole damn thing apart, the <laughs> so MCL, you, LCL have to go with it. They, right? Well, yeah. It, or they're scarred in and they're incompetent. Right. So the, now you have medial lateral stability and you prevent that. Now, if you get to the point where you have a tumor prosthesis, uh, which is a hinge prosthesis, or you're doing another revision, which basically means you're losing lots of bone, mm-hmm. then you link it together. And, I mean, you can replace an entire femur if you have to with a metal... Really? Yes, you can. The whole femur. You can do it. The tumor guys, they do it all the time, and they're. I mean, they're they've got a. They've got a titanium femur. A whole femur. Wow. Yeah, those guys are slick. Uh, I trained with uh, Dr. Richard Nicholas. How um, do they in uh, UMS with, during my training? The adductors those, to the medial diaphysis of a fucking they, titanium they femur. They don't. It just scars in. Wow. And then Corey Montgomery is a tumor guy. He's an orthopedic <coughs> oncologist who's Richard Nicholas is, uh, and he does it all. I mean, those guys are slick. They are. They are slick. That is amazing. It's amazing. That's amazing. And the joint guys that, I, and I'm just, I'm not <coughs> pubbing these guys just because I know them. But uh, Paul Edwards and uh, Lowry Barnes are the head of the uh, joint, and uh, Simon Mears at UAMS. Um, they're uh, the the academic guys at UAMS, and they do all that kind of stuff too. They do. All kinds of prostheses. It's impressive. It's an impressive thing. They're, it's an impressive, very much so. Apparently. I give credit where credit is due. So let's start like we did with the hip. Okay. Guy walks in the hospital. He lays down. We put him in a white gown, embarrass him, okay. you know. So we have him tie that thing in the back. He lays down. They tell him, uh, count backward from 100. And he gets to 99, and he's asleep, and he's in your OR. What do okay. you do now? Put a tourniquet around his leg, okay? That's, this is an interesting thing. That right. You have to do that to control the, the, the operation site, right? You don't want blood pouring into the Right, and a knee is, you know, a, knee, a hip is a, you know, with a hip, you can't do that. Right. But, but you try to lower pressure during a hip so that there's more, uh, so that it, there's not as much blood. But with a is knee, there any procedure you can do? For a hip to reduce the perfusion through the thing? hypotensive anesthesia. Oh, I just do it with chemistry. Yeah, right. Hypotensive okay. anesthesia, which means lower right. your blood pressure. Right. Um, so you put a tourniquet high on the thigh, um, and I, I explain to people, you know, when you get your blood pressure taken and it hurts really bad, right. that's about two hundred and fifty millimeters of mercury, and it's up right. for what three seconds. Yeah. We will put one on the thigh mm-hmm. at three hundred. Right. And leave for it there twenty something minutes. For 20 minutes. Sometimes an hour. Right. So you can imagine the muscle pain people have when they wake up. Sure. So you do an anterior approach to the knee. But while we're on that, what if you're not perfusing past the tourniquet, Mm -hmm. I know we got to keep the blood out of the open knee wound and everything, but what about the tissue? Is there any, is necrosis ever a factor in a situation like this? And why not? That's an excellent question. Um, Less than, specialty. Hour, less than an hour. Right. You're you're, you're okay. Shown. You're okay. But if it goes past an hour, a lot of people will release the tourniquet for about ten minutes. Let it let it perfuse, and they'll rewrap it, put it up again. Right. And so that's, that's and you're okay like that. You're okay. Right? You're Let's okay. say we've got unusual things to do down there. Then people so will you, do that. You and then some people because after they'll do it, some people will put the tourniquet down an hour. And just neutralize any aggressive bleeding, mm-hmm. and then do the remaining surgery without it. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And I know some just, people. Just it's rare, stuff, rare, right? rare. I've done a, 
I think in 17 years and of all the joints I've done, I, there's been three times that I've just said take tourniquet down because it's such a venous tourniquet. They mm-hmm. have a lot of fluid around their leg. You wrap it, and it, all the venous blood has stayed down there, and it just you right. can't see. You put it down, you stop the big bleeders, and then you do the knee replacement with it mm-hmm. without a tourniquet. So I've done that a couple of times. But there's some people that do that. Some people do. Not many. I mean, I, not many, but, I, but I've heard of it and actually read articles where people have done that. Right. Well, I'll come back to that. Because uh, I've got a, a question about the, the effects of the tourniquet post-op, but so we've we've got the tourniquet on, and now the knees painted with betadine, and you're going to cut right. the guy over. So we right. zip them. We uh, use an S mark, which is like a rubbery ace wrap. Get the blood out of the knee. Put the tourniquet up. Make a direct anterior approach, and we do a then we do a medial parapetellar approach, which means we find the with a quad tendon, patellar tendon, and we do a medial approach. We invert the patella. Okay, I do uh, what we cause, call because we have to keep the patella. Yes, we keep. We the, have to keep the patella and the quadriceps tendon and the quadriceps and the and the patellar ligament. Or you won't straighten. Or the leg. or we don't have a functional leg. Yeah, and there's right. no need to have a leg if you can't straighten. Right. It. Okay. Exactly. So we do what we call. I do a medial peel, which take the medial tissue off the proximal off the top of the tibia here. Um, there's a fat pad. In the front, right in the front of the knee, I take mm-hmm. about half of that off. Uh, then I invert the patella, which means you take the patella Just and lay it, to, lay it to the side. Place the knee on extension. Then I take a saw. A lot of people use a, use a, a guide to cut the patella. I do I do it freehand. I mm-hmm. take a saw, put something, and do it. And then you actually replace the patella with a button. Looks like a little plastic button like that. You replace the patella? Mm-hmm. A third of it. Under oh, patella. okay. Okay, yeah. so you've got plastic on... On, this. on metal, okay, right. Not cartilage right. on metal. Okay. So then I do the tibia first. Um, I place an extra medullary, which means a guide outside the internal aspect of the bone. Some people put one down in the middle. I do it on their ankle. Um, you cut it perpendicular to the tibial shaft. Cut about three millimeters, maybe four, off the most diseased side of the knee, which the majority of the time is the medial. Mm-hmm. Make your cut. Take that out. You enter the femur. And I cut a six degree between a five, six, seven degree valgus cut of the femur. Okay, all femurs are valgus, which means a little knot need right. from about five to seven sure, degrees because of the Q angle right. out of the right. hip. So right. put it in there. I cut. It depends, and this is all. Once again, this is all you learn this. If they have a, a extension con, a, a contracture, which means they can't straighten their leg out. You can do clean out more posteriorly, or you can cut more femur. Uh, you measure that before. You can you cut femur. I cut between 11 and 13 millimeters. Um, once you cut that, then you measure it. Put a measuring device. Okay, it's not like we have an implant that size. Now some of the other techniques with robots have them. You size it. They got all the sizes. You pick your size. Um, you make oh, your you'll cuts. have a variety of prostheses on the table. We've not on the table. We'll have sizes, but we have available. Right. Right. So, and I do a posterior stabilize, so I cut a box in the end of the femur um, to allow the box to be put yeah, in there. see what that looks like. I don't have it, but well, it's a box that's cut instead of what you're looking at here. A posterior stabilize will have a box cut that goes all the way through there, okay? okay. So but, the, but you've got that facet cut and that facet cut and this facet Well, cut. we have the medial, medial lateral from to, to match the, and the trochlea angles cut. in mm-hmm. the... So it matches it. It's right. just it's like a mold. Stick your hand in the mold, pull it out. You got a mold, you get your hand, just, it fits it. Mm-hmm. Um, then I put the knee on extension, remove the remaining portion of the medial meniscus, the lateral meniscus, and the posterior cruiser ligament. I take it out, completely out. Save the MCL, save the LCL. At that point, I balance it. Tight medial collateral ligament, you want to make sure that they're equal. You don't want right. a tight medial, tight lateral. 
Mm -hmm. I flex it back up, put tractors around the tibia, measure the tibia, tamp it in, size it, put the implant in like this, and I try it. Once I have the trials that I think work, we check flexion and extension, check our flexion extension gap. At that point, we mix the bone cement, which is polymethylmethacrylate or methylmethacrylate. Um, it's kind of a derivation of super glue. Then. It's, it's yeah, acrylate it's, glue. Yeah, so right. you get that, you put it on your implant. I do the tibia first. I always, I don't have this plastic on there. I have a little trial on it. Everybody does. You cement it out, you cement your patellar button. Once this, I release the tourniquet, um, neutralize any bleeding. Uh, check the back of the knee because there's a big uh, artery back there. You don't yeah. want to get that. Make sure you're not nicked. <laughs> right. And then I, by that time, by the time I've had it out and I've cleaned up the knee, any bleeding, you know what poly you're going to use. You, you pop your poly in and you close it up. You close the retinaculum, close sub Q, and then you do the skin, put a big dressing on it. The next day I get them up, start moving them. Some people use a CPM, which is continuing passive motion. The research studies show that the CPM doesn't make any difference. Right. Okay. It makes a that difference. That was my experience with my knee. It repair. makes a difference at two weeks only. Mm -hmm. uh, there's about a five or 10 degree increase at two weeks. At six weeks, there's no difference. You're right. not going to let a machine hurt you. No. You're not going to let a person hurt you. You're not going to let a machine hurt you. The only thing the CPM has been proven to do 100% is make you lose more blood and make you use more pain medicine. <laughs> so a lot of people Boy, disagree with I'll that. Tell you. And a lot of people will disagree with that and will argue with that. And I understand that. I'm not saying it's not good to use because I've used it on patients. That patients ask for it. I say, yes, we can use it. So I'm not, um, I'm not criticizing. Absolutely using. opposed. I'm not criticizing it. Right. I'm saying what I do. I used to use it in training. Mm. I mean, I didn't use it in training. I used it when I started private practice, and the only reason I used it because everybody else was, and I wanted right. to be just like them. And then at some point, at some point, your own preferences. And become, a CPM, just like any other machine, it's made for the average person. And and nobody's the back, average person. Constant passive motion. Yeah, we define it continuous continuous. Passive. Right. Continuous passive motion, passive motion right. machine. And it just operates your knee back and forth kind of slowly and stuff. Right. And so a lot of people say, well, my, and I hear this a lot. And I hear, well, my, you know, my, my husband or my grandmother or a friend of mine used it and they had a good result. You know, they had a good result because they the likely put the, good. they, and they likely put the time in in physical therapy. Mm -hmm. Your therapy progresses direct effort that the patient puts in. Right. Always. I have, always, always. I have patients that come in with bad knees, and they're sitting up in a chair the very next day, flexing their knee at 100 degrees. That mm -hmm. patient doesn't need anything. That right. needs some home exercises. Right. Hey, work on it. Slide your heel back. You're going to do fine. At 100 yeah. degrees, you're fine. I have patients right. that come out, and that and they they won't move their knee for 40 degrees. You know? Mm -hmm. I, I, Everybody's I got different tolerance for pain. Everybody's different laziness. You know, uh, different ambitions. Knees hurt more than hips post-op. They really hate you for two weeks. But most right. of the time, by six to eight weeks, they forgive you. They forgive you. So um, right. that's the basis of a hip and knee replacement. There's uh, a million things you can go into this. There's, a million, there's I don't know how many orthopedic surgeons there are in the nation. I think ten or 20,000. And so that means I'm, you know, there's about 9,999 or 19,999 who are smarter than me. But... <laughs> That's the basics of, of <laughs> hip and knee replacement. Oh shit! All right, uh, let me let me let's go back to the tourniquet situation. Okay. All right, when you set a tourniquet, has it been your experience that the tourniquet 
causes problems for proprioception in that leg post-op. In other words, the ability it, to feel the, uneven uh, surfaces. The, the ability to tell what your leg where it is in space. Does that have to be reset? What's the situation with that? Because right. that's a that's a potential concern, especially for like a younger athlete. If you have to do knee surgery on a younger athlete who's expected by his scholarship program to get back on the field, what happens with respect to the tourniquet? Okay, and I'm not trying to use this cliche every time we answer a question, but let's back up on pro, on rehab. When we talk about rehab, there's four phases of rehab. There's four phases. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's the inflammatory phase, okay? So basically that's the first part of rehab is to get the swelling down, okay? The second phase is to get the range of motion back. The third phase is to get its strength again, okay? Mm -hmm. The fourth phase is function. Proprioception falls into that. So that's late in the process. So if you speed any of those processes up or skip it, you're not rehab correctly. If you get your swelling down start strengthening, then you're going to be strengthening a joint or a, or an injury. It's still through swollen. A, through a, no, if you get the swelling down but start working on strength, you're going to be working on a joint that doesn't have proper range of motion. So you're going to be, oh, you're going to be strengthening a joint through a limited range of motion. That's not good for anything. Right. You know? So you have to get the range of motion back. You have to get the swelling down. You have to get the range of motion back. A lot of times you can do that together. Right. Then you get the strength. Okay? Mm-hmm. Once you get that, then you have all the tools you have to perform your activity, whether it be walking, whether it be powerlifting, whether it be playing football, whether it be playing basketball. People like to skip the function part. Right. They, they like to skip it. Oh, well, I'm strong and I've got full motion. Well, I can go back and play football. No, you can't. You have right. to, you, there are certain things you have to do to be a football player and a basketball player right. and a soccer player. You have to be able to cut. You have to be able to change position. You have to be able to feel proprioception. Yes. And proprioception is extremely important. And proprioception, for those of us that don't know what that is. And is I just to describe it's the ability to feel uneven surfaces. It's the ability for your body to feel where its foot is in space or right. it's, is in space. The, the ability to, to, to identify your position with respect to your environment, surfaces, water, whatever it is. With a knee replacement, when you have a tourniquet on there and you've squeezed these muscles, yes, proprioception is very important. And mm-hmm. you would be surprised the amount of people that take their first step and they feel like their leg is going to collapse mm-hmm. because they don't know where it is. I remember very clearly. <laughs> I don't know where my remember, knee is. remember very clearly having so, that happen. So that is a vital part. And, and, it, and that's it, a function of the tourniquet. Some of it is. Some of it is a function of, of having having your quad tendon cut. Some of it is right. a function of having your bone cut. If the quad tendon was cut. Yes. Well, the quad tendon is cut. It's cut It's cut longitudinally. To, oh, yeah. It's split. Yeah, it's, it's not, split. It's, it's part not of the retina. It's not sectioned. Yeah. But it, uh-huh. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So, proprioception is... it. So, if, if there was a way to do a knee without the tourniquet, would that be better post-op? Pain-wise, function-wise, rehab-wise, my answer to that would be yes. I think so. And it just it would be difficult to do it to, to get true hypotensive safe anesthesia to get a knee that's just not. And it's hard to explain unless you've seen it to, that's right. just really bloody. You right. Know? Well, you can't see anything. I can understand why it's done. It's obviously 
we've got to have a clean picture of the anatomy or we can't work well, on the and, anatomy. Well, my answer to that is right. I, there's a lot smarter people that figure it out, and I'm going to follow their lead until they tell me not to do it that way. <laughs> right. I mean, because they've the guys that started joint arthroplasty, they figured it out, and I'm sh- I guarantee you they tried every way possible until mm-hmm. they found a, found the technique that worked the best. All right, now we know how the procedure takes place, and uh, I think this is good information for a lot of people because there's there's just, I mean, this seems like it's awfully complicated, and it is awfully complicated. But how many of these have you done? Uh, hips and, and knees. Yeah, how many hips um, and knees have you done? You have an idea? Just joint replacement. Um, yeah. You know, around probably 250, 200 a year for 17 years. 150, 200 a year for 17 years. And that doesn't include hip fractures, and you put implants in on some hip fractures, so you can, I don't throw those in there. So, you know, 3, several thousand. 3,000. 3, 3 or 4,000 of these things. And the experience of having done these makes the procedure faster, and it makes the procedure much more reliable. So you, you're reproducing what you've already done hundreds and hundreds of times, and you're real good at this, right? I, I don't – now uh, let's back up. No, I, I surgeon, think that's an honest I think surgeon success assessment. is based on experience. And here's the greatest quote right. I've ever had, and this was from a guy at the VA that I trained with, Dr. Walter Solakovich. He was awesome. Done it for a long time. And, it, you know, good results and good decisions are based on experience which are based on your bad results and bad decisions right <laughs> you know right. so that's what you learn from <laughs> right yes. so i you know my volume of these is, is 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 relatively high a lot of guys don't like to do them and i understand that i like just they, they choose not to uh so good surgeon bad surgeon i i think the good term is you're experienced you have a mm-hmm. volume of them you've seen a lot of them i think that's a good way to, to right. put it i think right so. well i would much rather go to a, a a guy who's done a procedure three times that day and and me be the fourth one because i have a higher degree of confidence in the outcome since he's more than likely you know real good at this you know you don't want to you don't want to go to a knee replacement guy who's done three this month right right he may do an excellent job of those three he might right but But he it's more likely that a guy that's done three of them that day is going to have done a better job because of the experience right and the best way to explain that is that it nowadays if if you you know a lot of people get their medical information from billboards the and the internet and mm-hmm. and uh, pharmaceutical <laughs> company advertisement. Right. So you hear this big push for for robot assisted knee replacement, and 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 I and I get it. And I and um, one of the big things for robot assisted knee replacement is they they tend to promote their procedure by criticizing other procedures. Well, right, criticizing the, your experience right, essentially. Yeah, the the uh, the recent most recent study of eleven thousand one hundred ninety three knee replacements done half robot assisted half to, you know, without the robot, have right. shown there's no difference. None. None. And the independent variable, here's the variable, and I think the number is 100. If, you're, if your surgeon's doing more than 100 of these a year, there's, and it may be even lower than that, there's really no difference. Mm-hmm. Um, the robot is an excellent tool. It makes cuts on the femur and the tibia. That's, it doesn't open the knee up. It doesn't balance your knee. It doesn't cut your... 
it doesn't cut the patella. It doesn't close it. It doesn't open it. It doesn't take out the meniscus. It doesn't balance it. What it does is it gives as precise a cut on your femur and your tibia that you can get. Right. If you do enough of these, your cuts your cuts with the guides that you use. It's not like you're just freehanding. Right. You have guides, and you have to nail them in, and they're stuck. They're mm-hmm. not moving. Right. Are negligible as compared to a, a robot on the hip. Well, the robot, you does. know, that's an interesting. This is an interesting observation. If experience is uh, the the critical factor in terms of there actually being no difference in outcome between this precision robot and the surgeon, a an inexperienced surgeon could benefit from a robot. B that guy that's using a robot is not going to get the experience. That's true. That's true. And once again, I'm not criticizing the robot because I know some experienced surgeons that that like it, and they want their cuts to be exactly the same every time. And and my answer to that is that that is your preference. But don't criticize the other procedure that works to promote yours. My second follow-up to that is when you do a revision knee replacement, which means you take out an old implant or a failed implant or an infected implant and put a new one in, there is no robot that does that. So mm-hmm. revision knee replacement is a direct relationship to experience of the Surgical surgeon experience. and technique. Right. And so that's my follow-up to that. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes sense to me. Right. But I can see that uh, an increased reliance upon these uh, external aids would over time have a detrimental effect on the surgical community's ability to accumulate experience on this thing, you know, and I, I, think I, it's I don't con- know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, I, but certainly it's a factor. I, I think it's, I think it's a factor in it, in it, in anything. I, I think if you use a computer for months and months and months, and then somebody asks you to write a letter, with your hands. It's hard to do. Can't you, you, you can't. Your cursive isn't as good, even though you know how to Everybody's do it. Everybody's writing left-handed <laughs> now is what it, so, what it looks like. But I understand that. Technology is moving in that direction. Um, and uh, if if they if five years from now a new study, come, study comes out and says, hey, hey, the results are changing, we've, we've made improvements in the robot, it does a better job at that point. I'd have I'll, to I abso- Absolutely, I would. I would. I would get on board and say, "Okay, then let's let's start the process." Mm-hmm. When I when when that becomes the answer, then that is what you should do. I believe. But right now, you have a choice. The mm-hmm. surgeons have a choice. I think some use it, some don't. I'm not. Once again, right. I have lots of colleagues who use the robot and like it. And well, here's an here's an even more important question. Uh, when uh, when a patient presents. Uh, and I, I've had this uh, comment submitted on the forums quite a bit over the past 15 years that we've been running this damn thing. Uh, when, when a patient presents in the surgeon's office with a clear hip replacement situation, he's got hip pain, he's got, and once again, as, as Owen mentioned, hip pain presents in the groin, not lateral, it presents medial. And it's going to radiate down the thigh, and you may think something's something else is wrong, and you go to the doctor, and they have you do a standing X-ray, and you've got bone on bone arthritis in the hip. I've had lots and lots of people tell me, well, he didn't want to do a hip replacement because 
they, uh, they're afraid they're going to have to replace it again in 10 or 15 years, and we want to get as much mileage out of the original equipment hip as possible before we go in and replace it. And I think that is crazy. I don't think it's just stupid. I think it's, I think it's crazy because if you can't move, boys and girls, if you can't move, you can't train. And if you can't train, you can't maintain your muscle mass. And what happens to your quality of life? And Owen mentioned quality of life earlier. And I, this is a terribly important thing to, to think about. So tell us what your thinking is on this, because this does happen all the time, doesn't it? And it does. And I see a, I see a lot of, of, of people and patients that come to my clinic and, and they've been told they can't have surgery. And the majority of it is, is two reasons. One, they have an, a significantly elevated BMI. Okay. So they're mm-hmm. carrying a lot of excess weight. Or number two, they're, they're too young. Uh, when I first started in my training, there was a hard and fast rule at the VA when we saw patients. Nobody gets a knee replacement before the age of 50. That's kind of what you taught, you know. <laughs> now, when I got out, I, I saw a, a high, not a high, I mean, not every patient, but I saw lots of patients or an abundant amount of patients that came in with hip and knee arthritis or a, a dysplastic hip. They were born with hip dysplasia mm-hmm. and had yeah. a bad hip. Uh, or they had a tibial plateau fracture or, or the end of their distal femur fracture and they were trash. something some other reason for the mm-hmm. for the surgery that didn't involve bony arthritis right. and as and as people became more active in life with sports and especially with the uh, increase in women competing in sports at a younger age there's a lot more wear and tear of joints so mm-hmm. this is my opinion on that and i have done hip replacements in in a in in somebody's young as 17 who had a dysplastic, painful hip, no quality of life. I've had people um, in the gym like that I, several times. Knee replacements, the youngest knee replacement I've done is in their 30s. I've um, done many in their 40s, and I get more and more every day. And here's my, here's, and this was told me by a joint replacement surgeon because I called him and asked him. He said, This is what I tell my patients. And this, and he believes it, and I believe it too. When would you rather have a better quality of life? When you're in your 30s or 40s, or in your 60s or 70s, my answer is <laughs> in your 30s or 40s. Well, yes. If you can become, if you're active and pain-free in your 30s and 40s, you can do the things to your body that it needs to to do to be healthy when it's in their 60s and 70s. If you wait till your 60s and 70s and you've had an arthritic knee for 25 years, what are the chances that you've been out walking, Having lifting fun. weight, sleeping? Sleeping. <laughs> Something sleeping. as fundamental as that. Going on vacation right. with your family and being able to walk and look at things. Right. I mean, if you haven't done those things, you know, why, why do Why it? have you been here? You know, and, and so what I, have you done? By All right. So, so this is so obvious an analysis that it, it really needs to be emphasized uh as often as we can emphasize it, and I do this on the board all the time, but, but look at this, people. This is your responsibility. If, you've, if you're miserable and you can't walk and the doctor you go to tells you that now nah, he wants to wait 10 years because they don't want to have to revise this surgery later on, get another opinion. Get another opinion. This this is terribly critical. You're the one that's not sleeping. You're the one that's sitting around on your ass because you can't move, not him. And you're the one that needs this fixed. 
And you cannot allow medical authority to keep you from quality of life. That's just all there is to it. Right. And, and, and any, any physician who is offended by a second opinion isn't a physician that you need to see. Right. There's nothing wrong right. giving a second opinion. There's, there's nothing at all. There's nothing wrong with asking for your x-rays, seeing somebody and say, hey, I know I'm young. This is what I'm told. What do you think? And the decision for surgery has nothing to do with you on your podcast, no. your physician. If your surgeon is willing to take the risk with you to do it, the decision is up to you. It's your knee. Right. It's your hip. Right. Nobody can force a physician to do it. And right. I, I don't recommend go, people go out and doctor shop. I, I, I can't stand that. But if the opinion, but by the same token, and just because you get a second opinion doesn't mean that's the right opinion. No. Maybe the second opinion is wrong. Maybe your it first could be that the second right. opinion is wrong and the first opinion was right. That's absolutely true. But what it all boils down to is the simple fact that it's your hip. It's not his hip. It's not my hip. It's your hip. And if your hip is preventing you from enjoying your life and from doing the things that you know you need to do to continue to enjoy your life for another 30 years, then you need to get another opinion. And I, I, this this seems terribly obvious, doesn't it? And, and yeah. I, uh, But I think that people are just, you know, well, the doctor said. I get that. And a lot of physicians are, you know. You know, and I'm biased. Physicians are trying to protect their patients. But I this see. is what I tell a patient who's young and that we're going to undergo a hip or knee replacement. I'm like, look, there's risks to it. The likelihood of you having to have it revised is going to be high. If you're willing to accept the risks, then let's get this done. When you're, If you're having it done when you're 40 and you're 55 and it wears out, you and I can have this discussion on 55 what to do next. That right. discussion might be, hey, we need to revise this. The discussion might be, hey, you know what? you got a good 15 years, let's modify a little bit of our lifestyle and realize that there's some things that you were fortunate enough to do the last 15 years you can't do anymore. Right. And now, that's obviously the case, but here's another, here's another scenario that, that I don't think is considered often enough. You've got medicine advances. <laughs> We've got medical advances that take place all the time. We have advances in technology. Not all of them as basic as this. But we have subtle advances in in manufacturing techniques, in metallurgy, in material science that make that potentially replaceable without much revision into a situation where it wouldn't ever need to be replaced again. You don't know. What you do know is that if your quality of life right now is bad enough that you can't do the things you need to do, then something must be done. And if you can afford the surgery, if it's available to you, God help you if you're in, you're in the UK, right? But if, you, if, the, if things are available to you and you can take advantage of them, you need to do it. And it, it's, it's just a damn shame if you let somebody scare you into not getting your knee fixed. When your knee needs to be fixed, I agree with that. Yes, and uh, to jump from this subject to the subject is and why it, 
people ask, why is it important to have strength in your, to have a painless knee or a, or a near pain-free hip or near pain-free knee? Because activity prolongs your life. Let's talk about that study <laughs> you've got with you on the table. This is, boys and girls, we talk about this all the time. And it, listen carefully, okay? <laughs> so... If you, if you pick up a magazine in the grocery store or anywhere, you go to a health website, all, you know, unfortunately, you see unclothed male men showing that their pecs and their biceps. <laughs> yeah, at 4% body fat, <laughs> okay. that sort of shit. So the, the actual scientific proof, and this is an older study, there's multiple studies. The Health ABC study shows that leg strength is an independent variable for life expectancy. So that means it's an independent that, predictor. Yeah. So if you're if it's directly proportional, your leg strength is direct can be is directly proportional to your life expectancy. Um, all the way back to 2006, that showed that lower lower muscle strength in adolescents. Um, is a predictor of mortality. The stronger your legs leg, legs are, mm-hmm. the lower risk of mortality you get. And that's an adolescent right. study. That that's, falls into adulthood. Right. <laughs> right. There's, and there's, you know, and it's not hard to understand why this would be, is it? No, and and, and I'm not saying and, and you know, you can jump to anybody can give their opinion on that, but this is scientific this is scientific studies that is it's European. These are actual, actual studies. Actual, these aren't exercise and science and studies. These and are they're proven. These so, are actual studies. So what the, what does that say? That says that lower body strength, muscle strength, increases your risk of living longer. No, that's not saying if you go strengthen your legs, you're gonna live longer. What that means is that Call, the, correlation the, causation kind of, the, kind of thing. The, the more active you've been the more likelihood it is is that your legs will be strong the more likelihood everything increases there's a study right. in here that shows it's a leg strength is a direct relationship of cardiovascular death right. you're less likely to have cardiovascular death if your legs are strong and that's right. because you've been active We're, it's this is a correlation do you understand why if your legs are strong then you have been active if you have been active then everything else that you've done is more likely to be con- a, a contributing factor to longevity. So we're, we're seeing essentially leg size, leg strength, is a proxy for the lifestyle that keeps people living longer. This is an important thing to understand. But by the same token, if your knee pathology, your hip pathology, is preventing you from doing the things in life that keep your leg strength high, then that is also a proxy for a sedentary lifestyle. And because if you can't move, you're sedentary. And and a sedentary lifestyle has been proven to be lower lifespan. It kills you. Not only is it less fun and it's a lower quality lifespan, it's a shorter lifespan. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I really hate I really hate it when when people post stuff on the board that indicates that their wife or their or their cousin or their father has been told to not have this kind of a procedure done because that's just it's irresponsible. It really is. You're not really thinking of your patients. 
when you're I, I I I'd hate to say this, but I I think if you place your own professional liability ahead of your patient's well-being, then I I you're not a doctor I want to see. You're really not. Uh, Owen has got this absolutely right. You guys, your quality of life is 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 intensely dependent on your ability to use your body. And uh, if you need a knee and you need a hip, then get the damn thing, okay? Go ahead and get it. And, uh, I mean, how often with one of these operations is there actually an adverse outcome? Um, you know, I think most surgeon complication rates, uh, if you put all, all everything in there, infection, pain, all of the things, you know, ranges, you know, infection rate, about two percent maybe one or two percent you know other problems you know 96 percent success rate with knee replacements you know that's awfully good odds it's certainly as hell is better odds than the thing healing up by itself isn't it <laughs> that's not yeah. gonna happen yeah which doesn't occur and hip replacements are very patient satisfying surgery patients are very happy with hip replacements and if your hip has got to the point where it's that bad and you you get it fixed and you're pain-free i mean your life changes your life changes you walk you you become active you do things you haven't done before um and it, it does make a difference and, and i'm not just promoting it because i do it I, I see it every day and uh, well you you care about your patients and and more important than that you may have to have this done yourself yeah, one of these days. i hear you I you hear know you. and it's it's good to have thought in advance and we're asked what we're asking you to do is to think in advance this may not be an issue for you right now but if at some point in the future or if it has a bearing on somebody you love right now uh, this is good surgery this is important surgery we train people in the gym all the time we see people every month at a seminar two or three of them have had a knee or a hip they all squat. They all deadlift. They all can train. They're all active. Every one of them is happy as a clam that they had this thing replaced. And it's a it's a it's something for you to consider. And look, don't call Owen's office and, and bother him about it. He's got all the work he needs. This isn't an ad. It's this not is an ad. this is a, this is a public service announcement, okay? And my if recommendation: you, if you need the thing replaced, get it done. My recommendation is: is, is don't look for a, a technique. Don't look in a magazine on somebody's using this or that. Talk to a surgeon. That you talk to a surgeon. If you trust him, ask questions. You're going to get the answers you want. You'll you'll know you'll know it's right for you. And if you've had a surgeon that's an orthopedic surgeon and does these and, and he's done things for you, he, him or him or her have done things for you in the past, uh, trust them. Don't, don't change surgeons for techniques. Go to, go to somebody you trust. And that's the key. Uh, there may be, you know, all hospitals, when you're in the OR, they're all the same. You know, one hospital may have newer paint and shinier mm -hmm. stuff, but you're still using the same implants, the same saws, the same scalpels, the same stitches, and the rehab. And the, the variable <laughs> is the doctor. Yeah. yeah. The variable is the doctor. Uh, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for being here. This is a wonderful discussion. I hope that you guys have learned something today. And uh, if... If you've got somebody that, that needs this information, 
forward this shit to them, okay? This is, this is terribly important that people understand why and when these things need to be done, and don't be afraid to get it done. Thanks for joining us on Starting Strength Radio, and we'll see you next Friday.